Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Tuesday morning to you. Mike McNamara in for a Tuesday edition of All Marine Radio. Good morning to you, wherever you are. Hope you're having a good day. I am. Yeah, you know, um, really interesting. The, um, you know, these seminars I do, uh, very cool stuff happens in them, <laughs> and um, a lot of really interesting discussion about uh, about people's lives and whatnot. So I uh, last night and last night was was exceptional, and so uh, yeah, you go to bed with that um, with that stuff in your head, and wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it and whatnot. Um, so, um, yeah, good night and a good day yesterday. So, uh, getting ready to do more book writing. So I'm excited about that. Um, and Mark Cancian's Mark Cancian, Colonel United States Marine Corps from CSIS, uh, going to join us here in a few minutes. And, um, We're going to talk about budgets. We're going to talk about the Marine Corps and the Navy. And then a couple of very, very interesting, um, couple of very, very interesting articles written or forwarded to me. One in the Wall Street Journal, Will Cosentini sent to me yesterday. Uh, it's an opinion piece and it's entitled, If War Comes, Will the U.S. Navy Be Prepared? A new report details a culture of bureaucracy and risk aversion that is corroding readiness. Now, it's interesting when, when these kind of issues that we've all watched for a long time um, get written about in the Wall Street Journal. 
right? Written about by Kate Batchelder Odell. So um, also somebody uh, who got on my radar during watching the budget uh, testimony uh, published a piece yesterday, uh, and her name is Elaine Luria, right? Ohio man sent this to me. And I'll include both of those in the in the interview with uh, Colonel Kansian. But uh, so, I mean, really, she's really a, you know, she's talking about defining what winning is, defining then a maritime strategy to help you win, blah, 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 blah. And then she talks about maneuver forces um, and the Marine Corps. And again, I think when you when you talk about maritime strategy, she was asking, you know, Lieutenant General Eric Smith about the origins of the Marine Corps' entire strategy. Where did this come from? So, um, anyway, so she's, I mean, she should be the Secretary of the Navy, no shit, okay? Um, But anyway, uh, that article is entitled, A New U.S. Maritime Strategy. And it's in a publication called SIMSEC. Center for International Maritime Security. So, um, congratulations to them on uh, on getting uh, somebody of her caliber to write for them. So, we're going to talk about all this today. So, Mark Kansian going to join us in about nine minutes. Um, I don't know that uh, I'll launch this thing really quick right here. So, the United States Marine Corps Band makes uh, today official. Good morning. This is dedicated to Representative Elaine Luria. I think she's a captain, United States Navy, retired. Um, (laughs) Let me tell you, the work she does, the questions she asks, fucking motivate my ass, man. Finally, somebody paying attention, somebody standing up there asking hard questions and not accepting the, you know, the nonsensical, I won't say nonsensical, but the boilerplate answers that they get. And somebody really interested in in maritime strategy. So, what a refreshing thing. Nice going, Colonel. I'm sorry, Captain. 
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. You know, it's interesting. Representative Luria uses that word a whole bunch in her in her in the piece she writes. Winning. 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 Interesting. Anyway, check the weather real quick and then Mark Cancion will join us. Um, currently it is Mostly sunny and 88 in the Quantico area. It is uh, mostly sunny and 86 down the coast of Camp Lejeune. It is sunny and 90 in 29 Palms. Camp Pendleton. Camp Pendleton is sunny and 70. Camp Smith and Hawaii, dark cloudy 72. Okinawa, dark cloudy 82. In... uh, the Philippines in Manila, it is dark, cloudy, and 80. And in Darwin, in the Northern Territory of Australia, it is clear, dark, and 72. Oddly enough, here in the Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area of Southern California, it is partly sunny and 71. Looking for a high today of Seventy-five, seventy-four on Wednesday, seventy-four on Thursday, seventy-four on Friday, seventy-five on Saturday. I will tell you, this is uh, as much of the nation is embroiled in heat. We here in Southern California have had probably one of the mildest summers I can remember. Temperatures rarely getting above eighty, which I love. I know it sucks for the rest of y'all, but such is <laughs> such is life, man. Such is life. The um, I'm going to get Colonel Cansey on, on here. So don't touch that dial. You get to hear the wonderful little ringing tone of uh, Skype as we get Mark on. So uh, always fun to have him on. And uh, always, always an interesting... Okay, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Mark Kansian joins us, and uh, as he does on occasion, um, retired Colonel, United States Marine Corps Reserve, where all the finest officers serve, um, and uh, working now at CSIS, as we all know. Uh, Mark, I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about 
what seems to be after watching the budget um, um, hearings um, over the course of the last month, um, the precarious position that the Navy and the Marine Corps find themselves in um, relative to the Bi- the upcoming Biden budget, and will Congress rescue both services? Um, so, um, and then I, there's a couple articles I want to ask you about. So, um, first of all, give me your thoughts on that, and and separately on the Navy and their shipbuilding programs, and then the Marine Corps. And you know, to quote the Commandant, "I've wrung all that I can wrung out of the Marine Corps." Um, so, uh, your thoughts on where each service stands in this uh, budget fight? Sure. The general problem that the Biden administration is going to have is having is you know that it has more strategy than budget. Uh, you know they've outlined a very um, forward-leaning strategy, very consistent with the Trump administration, frankly, and the late Obama administration. You know that is they are focusing on great power conflict, particularly China, but also Russia. Uh, They are going to stay engaged in the Middle East, although they want to pull back from Afghanistan in Iraq. They want to be forward deployed around uh, the world. They want to stay engaged with allies and partners. They want to maintain highly ready forces. They want to maintain um, uh, an all-volunteer force and, and modernize the uh, nuclear triad. Now, that's consistent, as I say, with the Trump administration right. and with the late Obama administration. Right. The problem is that's all very expensive and their budget uh, is not sufficient uh, to maintain that strategy. Now, for you know, one year, uh, 2022, you, know, you can get away with it. Uh, but if the out years are capped the way that 22 is, then they're going to have some severe problems as the gap increases between the strategy that they've articulated and the forces uh, that they are sustaining. And they'll have to make some very tough trade-offs. And when they say tough trade-offs, that means they're either going to have to give up some of the strategy or let some of it be, in effect, a bluff. That is, you know, words that are not backed up by military force. Okay, talk to me about the Navy. I mean, honestly, it's been painful to watch the budget hearings as um, as you have representatives. And and I would be remiss, I, I spoke about her earlier here when I opened the program, but Representative Luria is like a breath of fresh air in this discussion. You know, smart, um, a, a, a seagoing, you know, United States Naval officer, from the United States Naval Academy, I think a double major, one in nuclear engineering or engineering, and the other one in history with a minor in French. She goes on to become a a nuclear propulsion, you know, officer, engineer, and serves her entire career at sea, which is unheard of in today's Navy. Um, yep. And then, but I don't, I don't know any of that when I see her in the budget hearings. And then the, the question she starts asking, you're like, who is the... <laughs> Who is this person and where did she come from? And then you read about her and you're like, wow. 
Um, and she kind of walks us through this scenario of uh, asking the CNO, you know, we've heard this divest to invest before. The problem is we never get to the payoff part of it. Yep. And, and so she takes him down this road that talks about you started down this road and then it failed. You started on this road and then it failed. Not you, but the Navy, you know, writ large did. And so um, at the end of, of these kind of uh, back and forth, um, and you had, you know, Representative Gallagher, uh, Seth Moulton, and there was another one from Maine who's a former Marine, and I thought were absolutely awesome in the, these discussions. But, um, and not because they were, they're, they're former Marines or former sailors, uh, naval officers, uh, because I thought their questions were spot on in terms of where the Navy and the Marine Corps are. And ultimately, is the Biden administration giving you what you need to grow the Navy, given the expenses that you have upcoming with the modernization of the submarine fleet, the F-35, yada, yada, yada? And the answer clearly was no, um, that, that it barely keeps up with inflation. And so where is the Navy, Mark, relative to this budget position and shipbuilding and all the yeah. things they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, the Navy got a little more money uh, and the Air Force as well, uh, but not nearly enough to implement the kind of plans that they've had in the past. That is to grow the Navy now, you know, whether it's going to grow it up 355 ships, which was the Trump administration's goal or something less. And, you know, they've signaled something less, uh, you know, the money just isn't there. And in fact, you know, the, the fleet will get smaller um, in the FY22 budget because they retire a bunch of ships early and only build eight new ones, uh, of which only four are really combatants. So they're taking a step back. And Loria and the others are quite correct. You know, you know, in theory, um, you can divest to invest, but in fact, you you never get back to where you were before. And if you look at the Navy in the past, you know, they faced this um, situation uh, a couple of times. They faced it in the late 60s as you know, the World War II ships were going out of the inventory. They had to invest in new ships, uh, which they did. But the, the, you know, the size of the fleet got much smaller. Then you see it again at the end of the Cold War. You know, they retire a lot of the older ships. Uh, but the fleet goes from 600 down to you know, 290. Uh, and I think that's where you're going to end up now. You can make plans for, you know, pick a number, 320, 330. Uh, but you're going to end up at 270, you know, as you retire ships early. You try to put money into new ships, but either the money isn't there or the ships are more expensive. Um, so, yes, the Navy is in trouble. You know, they would like to get money from the other services. And at the, at the end of the Trump administration, uh, during the last year, uh, the Navy explicitly got up and said, hey, we need money from the other services. And of course, immediately, and when I say immediately, I mean within hours, uh, both the Air Force and the, and the Army jumped up and said, well, no, uh, you know, we have our own needs. And then, of course, laid out their own uh, requirements. Um, you know, and, you know, all of the other services, uh, you know, are making their own uh, arguments. The uh, Air Force is making arguments, you know, to expand or at least you know hang on and modernize you know typically the air force is willing to give up some force structure for modernization but they have a lot of modernization to do you know their aircraft are very old uh, and the army's just trying to hang on i mean everybody you know is looking at army end strength as a bill payer they know it 
the uh, Army Chief of Staff has been running around Washington doing events, making the argument about why the Army is needed even in a conflict in the Western Pacific with China. Uh, he came to CSIS and I hosted him uh, on an event back in, I think it was April. Uh, but, you know, he went to all the think tanks to make this argument that uh, they lost some money, uh, but they held on to end strength. And uh, they're hoping to, uh, you know, maintain that through uh, the five years. Uh, and I should say that, you know, what came out in whatever it was, June, May, June, was an FY 2022 budget. That it was a one year budget. The administration is developing a new national defense strategy and that new national security strategy. It'll roll those out probably in January, right before the next budget, the FY 2023 budget, which will come out the first week in February. And then we'll get a sense about how all of this is going to shake out. You know, what's going to be the size of the army? What's going to be the balance between the services? How big a navy uh, do they plan uh, to build? So right now we're speculating about that. All right. So talk to me about would that be part of the quadrennial? Um, yes. Yeah, defense review. Yes. Defense review. <laughs> uh, but and that, then, that, 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 the title has been superseded by national defense strategy. Got but it. it's the same document. Got it. So, you know, a, a, a strategic document to lay out uh, the course for the next four years under the administration. Got it. And all right. So. What we're looking at is a one-year budget for fiscal year 2022. Um, the other shoe will drop in January where we see their longer-range forecast for the, yep. at least the balance of the Biden administration. What yep. um, Talk to us about the situation that the Marine Corps and the Commandant find themselves in today. Um, the first well, – well, of course, the Commandant has laid out you know, this um, restructuring – plan, pretty radical. And we've talked about this before. Uh, the notion is that the Marine Corps would get smaller, going down to about um, uh, 175 for the active force and squeezing their reserves also. Uh, and that the Marine Corps would take that money and invest it in the new capabilities that it's looking for, particularly these long-range precision strike uh, capabilities. Uh, to the Marine Corps' credit, they identified offsets to make this change. You know, other services, the Air Force and the Navy, both of them, you know, had grand plans and, and very vague um, notions about how they were actually going to pay for it. Uh, the Marine Corps is so, that, and that's why the Commandant comes out and says, you know, we have squeezed everything because you know they have made a bunch of cuts internally to fund these new investments that they want to make. So that's a fair comment. The, the Army has made the same argument, and again, quite plausibly. Uh, the problem the Marine Corps is facing is that if the budget comes down, the administration may just take those offsets and say, well, thank you, that's your contribution to a reduced top line. Uh, and the Marine Corps is saying, well, okay, now we're smaller. We don't have money to make these new investments. What do we do? Uh, they could get even smaller, but, you know, 175, I mean, that's, that's you know, the level the Marine Corps was at you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, it's been a long time since it was that low, actually. And to go even lower, you know, you're talking about, you know, prior to the Korean War. So uh, they really don't have much more to squeeze and they're sort of in a tough place. And that's why the commandant made his uh, comment. Now, to be fair, 
the Marine Corps did pretty well in the 22 budget. And I think the strategic concepts between, behind the restructuring have resonated in the strategy community. Uh, you know, although, again, you know, I have some reservations. I think that the concepts have been broadly supported. Uh, and as a result, they got a little more money in 22. You know, they did not take the deep the cuts that, you know, for example, the Army army took. So, you know, maybe they will be able to get enough money to execute this uh, concept. But you know, the Commandant's clearly quite worried. The um, Can you tell me the last time the uh, Marine Corps was at 174? When was that? Um, you I know I'm asking you off the top of your head, and it's probably unfair of <laughs> you, and, uh, and, and certainly unprofessional of me to do that, put you on the spot like that. But I'm just curious in terms of, you know, history. When when was the last time uh, we were we were there? So can you give us, Mark, I mean, what did the Marine Corps get out of the budget relative to what they wanted, even though you say they did a little better where does where does it put General Berger relative to the glide path that that he that he wants to be on? Okay, well, let me answer your question first. Here, I mean, I've All done right. a quick um, search of the DoD documents. Um, they were at one seventy four, one seventy three, actually, right at the late end of the nineties. You know, as the DoD was, you know, hitting its bottom after. Uh, the Cold War, right. uh, and then it started to come up, and of course, then during the war, so you know, went, um, you know, okay, so uh, quite high. So uh, late, late, before, not late nineties. Late nineties, it was once, and then before that, you have to go. Uh, well, nineteen sixty, it hits one seventy one again. That's a that's a, you know, that's a bottoming out there. Um, uh, you know, coming off of the Eisenhower years where there was such a focus on uh, nuclear forces. Right. Uh, and then it starts to come up again when the uh, uh, Kennedy administration comes in, you know, flexible response builds up uh, conventional forces. So so you, you get these two bottoms at about 171. And then before that, you, you know, you're down to 1950, you know, in the, uh, you know, the bowl of chowder in the hole, you know. Ah, right, right, right. Uh, so... Um, you know, so 175, you know, maybe, you know, they could bump down to 171, but that, you know, those would be post, uh, you know, World War II lows. Um, so the Marine Corps doesn't really have a lot of, uh, 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 you know, margin to play with. Uh, Talk to me about, okay, so what was the Marine Corps asking for? What did it get? And, and so where do you see, where do you see this budget relative to the com so i guess the the question coming out of the budget hearings that um we listened to here i i actually recorded them and then i edited out the things that people who listen to this would not be interested in tried to focus on the navy and the marine corps and um and played those things and you know the question was in this in this smaller you know in spite of the whole budget growing incredibly you know defense is not um and you know, how would the Navy and the Marine Corps fare? Would Congress rescue them? The Navy saying that we need 3 to 5% real growth in our budget after inflation. So that's what real means. Uh, the Marine Corps 
you know, again, with the commandants, you know, saying, hey, I, I've wrung everything out. And I, I've heard that, you know, well, I won't give you the number that I heard, but I mean, it's it's not an insignificant number of billions of dollars that the Marine Corps needed. Uh, what was the Marine Corps asked? What did they get? And where do you see this uh, putting them relative to the glide path the commandant wants the Marine Corps to be on? Um. Yeah, I think, you know, the Marine Corps in 22, I think, actually did fairly well. Um, you know, their their resources went up. Um, so, you know, all considered, you know, it wasn't too bad. Uh, but, you know, they, you know, or I think had enough to maybe to um, uh, pay for inflation, uh, which, you know, the Army did not. So, you know, that's, that, you know, that's a win in the current uh, budget Wait, environment. Wait, pay for installations? No, inflation. Inflation. Well, right. I know, but then, but if that's all they got, then right. General Berger's, you know, the things that he needs to buy to create the Marine Corps that he envisioned, yep. that's not going to happen. Uh, no, he's going to need more money than that. Uh, you know, he wants to buy, you know, for, for, for example, he wants to convert most of the artillery to missile launchers, uh, retire the cannons and move to missile launchers, buy missiles, which are very expensive. Now, you know, that fits the notion of a long-range precision strike right. uh, capability, a long-range precision strike-oriented force, which he wants to build, uh, but he has to buy the systems and then buy uh, the munitions. He wants to buy, uh, for example, uh, unmanned vehicles. Uh, they're buying a couple of them, but, uh, you know, the Marine Corps is far, far behind the Army and the Air Force, so... They have a lot of catching up to do. The commandant would like to do that. But again, you have to buy those systems. Um, for that, he will probably need to uh, cut back on the F-35 buy. And when you when you read what he says, you know, he practically comes out and says that. But there's a lot of sensitivity there, you know, a lot of. Yeah, interest. I mean, I mean, these things are expensive, right? The funding gets approved. They become essentially programs of record. We're down the road in Dubai, and the the level of, of units produced defines the price in, in, in many cases. And now the Marine Corps, both in the CH-53 Kilo and the mm -hmm. F-35, say, yeah, we don't want so many. Is, right. I mean, will Congress look at you? Do you think Congress will look at them and say, sorry, that dog doesn't hunt? Um. It's going to be tough uh, to cut back on both of those. I mean, of course, the 53Ks that are only being built for the Marine Corps. Right. Uh, 35, the Marine Corps is buy is you know just one part of a, a broader you know tri-service buy an international buy. Right. Uh, but the 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 program gets so much attention, and frankly, it is so you know, um, central to the way Marine aviation thinks of itself. Uh, Marine aviation has. You know, thinks of itself as manned aircraft and, you know, transitioning that culture to um, unmanned, you know, would be a huge change. Uh, uh, you know, it was very difficult for the Air Force. They did make that transition for the most part. You know, back in the 2000s, Marine Corps Aviation has not made that transition. Uh, so, uh, you know, fiscally, they would have to cut back on F-35s and 53Ks. Uh, Going to be very difficult, both the Congress and, I say, internally. Um uh, plus, you know, there are a, you know, a bunch of other systems that they want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, want to buy, uh, you know, to implement this 
um, uh, Yabo, you know, this expeditionary uh, air, you know, advanced expeditionary bases. Um, and it all costs money. And then, of course, we could talk about the amphibs, which is another whole uh, subject where the Marine Corps is also in you know, really a lot of trouble. Well, we haven't even got to that yet. Right. Okay. So when you look at, so look into, so again, you know, the Marine Corps was funded to keep up with inflation, right? Which yep. is not what, you know, certainly the commandant was looking for. Um, and, you know, looking to buy, you know, long range missiles, UAVs. And again, the Marine Corps story with UAVs to me reminds me of the Navy story with shipbuilding. I mean, it is just, I mean, we had F-35s flying when we could have had Reapers flying in Afghanistan. We, yep. w- and we destroyed our fixed-wing aviation, and, and much of what they were doing could have been done, you know, um, and was done for longer periods of time with more affordable platforms, and we simply didn't embrace it for I don't know why. Um, and we burnt up our fixed-wing assets way sooner than they should have been. Um and, and we saw the readiness, you know, readiness below 50 yep. percent, you know, uh, within the last three or four years in, in terms of the F-18 community. So let's talk about shipbuilding. Um, uh, give us the State of the Union um, relative to this, um, the mythical light amphibious warship that yep. is 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 supposedly being designed and, you know, we hope is funded, but um, not great news, you know, relative to the budget. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there is some good news. Um, you know, the the light amphibious warship is funded. Uh, the problem is the amphibious fleet and the um, uh, structure of the future amphibious fleet. You know, for decades, the Marine Corps goal for amphibious ships was 38 right uh and they would accept you know a resource constrained fleet of 33 34 and the derivation of the 38 was very straightforward it was uh two amphibious mebs each with that required 17 ships so two mebs required 34 ships and then at any time about 10 percent were going to be in long-term maintenance and unavailable so you had to add 10 percent on top of that that gets you to you know, 37.4 right. rounded up to 38 and that was the requirement for many many years Marine Corps argued that that was linked to the war plans that required uh, two amphibious mebs uh, and that was also a comfortable number to do the day-to-day deployment send out the muse and the args right. so all of that fit together uh, General Berger in his initial commandant's guidance says we will no longer use two amphibious methods to size the amphibious fleet because our vision for future amphibious operations is not this massive um, amphibious assault, but these very distributed operations, small groups of Marines uh, on islands, uh, you, know, you know, building these uh, bubbles of capability and you know, long range strike. Okay. The problem is, having said that, they never replaced it with a new concept for amphibious ships. Uh, they said that, you know, we're going to develop that. Uh, there are alternative concepts they could have come up with. I mean, they could have made an argument, for example, about peacetime uh, deployments, you know, arguing that 34 
large amphibious ships requirement to do require to do the day-to-day deployment for presence, crisis response, engagement with partners and allies, humanitarian assistance, you know, you name it, right. uh, that the uh, combatant commanders require. Uh, but they did not make that argument. Uh, and, you know, the Marine Corps sort of edged up to that argument in the past. They haven't made it. Uh, uh, but what that meant is that there, therefore there was no rationale for the size of the amphibious fleet. On top of that, the Marine Corps was asking for this light amphibious warship. Now, their concept was that these 30-ish light amphibious warships would be added to the existing 33 uh, large amphibious warships. So you end up with a number in the 60s. And if you look at some of the the, uh, shipbuilding plans back in the late Trump years, you know, they they show 60, 65, 70 uh, amphibious ships, you know, combining these these two. You know, the problem is, of course, the Navy is looking at a constrained budget and their uh, shipbuilding plan uh, shows uh, a much lower number. Now, they're showing a range with every budget. The Navy is required by law to show a 30 year shipbuilding plan. But of course, right. with 22, they only have a one year budget. So they only showed, a, you know, they show a range in the future. Um, but that range for the, you know, large amphibious warships is, uh, uh, well, combined with the LHA LHDs is, uh, 24 to 28 and then small amphibious warships, 24 to 35. So 24 to 28 of what used to be 33, 34 on a full requirement of 38. So a much, you know, smaller, um, Wow. Uh, amphibious ship, amphibious right. fleet. Now, from the Navy's point of view, this is perfectly reasonable. <laughs> you know, the Marine Corps got up and said, you know, these large amphibious ships are too vulnerable, so we're not going to, you know, emphasize those. We're going to emphasize small um, ships. And uh, so the Navy is saying, well, okay, but then we're not going to build as many of these large ships if you say that they're too vulnerable. Plus, you say you want 30 of these new kind of ships. Well, you can't just add all these things together. You got to give something up. So, you know, from the Navy's point of view, this is perfectly reasonable. Uh, but what the Marine Corps is then backed into is a smaller fleet of these large ships. And in fact, you know, I wrote this article in Breaking Defense. You know, it, on, the, on the small end, basically, you're done building LPDs for the next 20 years. Uh, well, maybe 15, um, because you have enough, you know, between what you build with the LPD flight ones, which replace, replace the older LPDs, and then the flight twos, which are going to replace the LSDs. Um, I think you've, I think they funded three or four of those and, you know, you, you're there, you're done. Uh, so you don't need to build any more for, you know, at least a decade. Uh, on, at the higher level, you'll, you'll build a couple more, but not too many. You know, the Bonhomer shard, you know, which, which burned, is now being scrapped would not be replaced because under these uh, numbers you don't need it so you know that fleet of large amphibious ships would get much smaller and then the navy and you know secretary of defense's office would say you know and that's consistent with marine corps what you have told us about future warfighting needs then you have this light amphibious warship and you know the the concept is not bad and you know personally i believe that the Navy and Marine Corps need a smaller amphib. You know, the, over time, the amphibs are getting much, much larger. You know, the uh, 
uh, even the small amphibs, you know, the LPDs are much larger than the LPDs uh, of the past. So the idea that you want a, a small um, amphibious ship, I think, makes a lot of sense. You know, there are a lot of requirements out there that you don't have to send, send one of these monster ships to. You can send a smaller ship or two smaller ships. Uh, the problem with the, the law is it's very small. And, uh, you know, they, they've talked about, um, you know, a transit speed of 14 knots, not the 20 knots uh, of the other amphibs, you know, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, you know, troop count of 75. Um, it's really the size of a World War II LCI, you know, the landing craft infantry. <clears throat> Not right. even the size of a World War II LST, which was about 2,000 tons. Um, really designed just to go from point A to point B once. You know, so you put troops on Okinawa, you take them to the Philippines, you let them off, period. That's it. Um, because it's too small to sail around, too small for troops to stay on for any period of time. So you can't use it for uh, global deployments, you know, the six-month, you know, classic MUSOC. Right. Uh, that we've used in the, in, in the past. It's too small for that. Um, the other thing is it, it's designed for only a service life of 10 years. So, you know, you've got this really small ship with a small with a short service life um, that can't be used day to day. It's not going to make deployments. And my fear is that it's just going to sit in harbor. and People are going to look at this and say, you know, Navy, you've screwed up again. You know, you've built a ship that you can't use. And, uh, uh, you know, this is the, the LCS of the 2020s. Um, you know, I, again, have written uh, in proceedings and elsewhere that the, the Marine Corps and Navy should look at a, a larger ship. And when I say larger, I'm talking, you know, in the 3,000, 5,000 ton range. Now, 5,000 tons would get you about where, you know, the county class LSTs of the Cold War period. And, um, you know, th and those could do, you know, global deployments. They weren't exactly comfortable uh, having spent some time on them, um, but they could do you know, global deployments and, uh, you know, would still be small enough that, you know, you could send them in on these. How many, so uh, how many knots would they be capable of and how many troops? You know, the, uh, the county class, uh, they were 20 knot ships, and I'm going to say they carried, I'm going to say 150, 200. Um, maybe they could get more in there. I'd have to, I'd have to go and Google it. Uh, okay. You know, no, just but, in terms of approximate, that's good. Yeah. yeah. But what, a, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of, as I say, small. And, and, and in your mind, Mark, that ship is in a great, is, has a longer shelf life. Right, and right. I mean, it was a thirty-year ship. Yeah, you know, greater sort of a standard and with ship. with yeah. greater utility uh, right. to the fleet. The other right. thing, the other thing that was interesting to hear, you know, is I think at one point, you know, they talked about using commercial shipping, um, uh, either construction um, uh, requirements, and that the area of the ship that would be protected, you know, would be where Marines are, birthing areas, whatnot. So it it looks like accommodations being made, you know, for to try to get this thing built and get it built cheaper. Now, I, but my, 
I guess my question is, wouldn't in theory that once these things are built, there's going to be Marines on them, and they're going to they would be moving around, be at the South China Sea, um, the Southwest Pacific, whatever whatever region that these um, these Marine littoral regiments are operating in, that that's where they would be, and they would be in use because they're supposed to be the platforms from which this constant presence in the weapons engagement zone happens from. So I I don't see them going from point A to point B. Aren't they the, the aren't they the mobility platform of the MLR? Yes. You mean you mean the uh, AWS, you know, the Light or the rather the LWS, you know, right. the Light Amphibious Worship. Yeah, that, right. I mean that's the idea. You know, that you would have an MLR on, say, Okinawa, and in an emergency, you know, you would put them on these um, light amphibious warships and, uh, you know, and then they would go down to some island in the, you know, wherever, you know, Philippines, South China Sea, wherever, you know, offload their um, uh, troops and, you know, then go home. Uh, but, you know, they, because they were small, you know, they could, you know, maybe be less detected and uh and if you lost one it wouldn't be that big a deal uh, uh you know and and the concept you know i think makes a lot of sense you know well if, i want to talk to you about the concept because one thing yeah. is representative luria yeah who i'm i'm president of the representative elaine luria right fan, fan club fan club yeah. exactly um she um she tied into colonel uh, lieutenant colonel uh, I, he was a lieutenant colonel when I met him, um, Lieutenant General Eric Smith. And he, she was pinning him down on where did this requirement come from? And when you read her piece um, that she uh, that she published, uh, I believe it was it was yesterday. Um, when you read her piece, she gets after strategy, right? being the driver of requirements, being the driver of force structure, and then she goes through it. And so I thought it was I thought it was very um thought it was very interesting mm-hmm. uh her uh her discussion uh and uh and the article's entitled uh a new US maritime strategy. And so I mean she she was pinning him down and ultimately he was saying, well this kind of came out of discussions and she said well did it come from a requirement from the chairman did it come from a requirement from the joint chiefs relative to strategy and and so she was trying to pin him down specifically about that what you're talking about how will this navy marine corps team fight and what is the marine corps contribution to that so i thought that was very interesting her getting to the very core of this quote-unquote requirement that the marine corps has built itself around um, your thoughts on that? It seemed like, in a very, very polite way, she was questioning uh, the requirement that you know that the Marine Corps is now going to be, you know, missile-laden, anti-submarine platforms, anti-ships. And I think her response would be, "Well, isn't shouldn't, isn't that the Navy's job?" Yeah. And and who said we need a Marine Corps that has these capabilities? Where did that come from? And he really didn't have an answer for that. And she said, "Well." I probably need to sit down with your staff. And she very graciously then kind of waved off of that 
very public kind of awkwardness. You're, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Um, you know, I, I'll give the Marine Corps some credit before I criticize them. But, you know, the, the credit is, you know, if love, you love think that. the next conflict is going to be with China in the Western Pacific, uh, then, you know, their concept, you know, comes together. That is, you know, this notion of small teams of Marines with long range Pacific uh, precision strike on islands and um, uh, territory in the Western Pacific and getting there by sea or by air, uh, by air, for example, C-130s, the Marine Corps is going to increase the number of C-130s, or by sea using these small platforms that, you know, are, are attritable as opposed to the large, you know, LPDs, which are, you know, very expensive, very um, uh, uh, visible. Uh, so I think, you know, and I, and I think that that, you know, that fits. And I think the Marine Corps can make a reasonable argument that that, you know, then links to the broader strategy of focusing on uh, China. You know, I, you know, my my concerns are twofold. I mean, one is, you know, the history of these things is the next conflict isn't going to be in the Western Pacific. Uh, it's going to be someplace else that we probably haven't even thought about yet. Have, uh, and, have you seen uh, Lynn Wells's memo about the 2001 quadrennial defense review? Have you seen that? I think so. Is, it, is this the one that, that goes decade by decade about what people were expecting? Right. Yes. Right. Yes. right. And, the, and how they were always wrong. That's right. <laughs> and not yeah. wrong by a little bit. Right. Yeah. Right. They, right. Right. And, right. So that's when you look it, at the history of, you know, the Cold War period. You know, we prepared for conflict, you know, great power conflict with the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact. Fortunately, we deterred that. And, but we fought a whole bunch of other wars for which we were not well prepared. Uh, so my concern is that the Marine Corps will be over-specialized. Um, and, you know, there's also the question about the concept. You know, again, I mean, it sounds good. You know, briefs well, you know, this idea of small teams that will move around. You know, whether that's really practical, whether you can keep them supplied. Um, you know, a small team might live off, off the land, but you can't live off the land when you're talking about firing dozens of long-range precision missiles. You know, I mean, you have to get those you know, to the unit, uh, you know, whether that's going to be practical. Uh, I, I once gave this, you know, this critique to a group of Marines and someone came back and said, well, have you ever heard of Guadalcanal? I said, well, yes, I have. He said, well, that's, you know, that, that's the image, you know, Guadalcanal was a Marine insertion inside the Japanese A2AD bubble and, you know, provided long range precision, precision fires, um, against the Japanese and ultimately, you know, succeeded in rolling them back. Um, and I said, you know, that's not a bad image. How big was the Marine Corps um, lodgement? It was a division plus. Okay, so you're not talking about a company running around the jungle. You know, you're talking about division plus that set in and stayed there for eight months, you know, while the Japanese pummeled it. Yeah, uh, I was. Gonna, I, I would question the, the inclusion in the assertion of provided long-range precision fires. You obviously uh, haven't re- haven't read that much about Guadalcanal because if you had, you know that those guys were a punching bag. You know, for the vast majority of the time they were down there, and what they provided they, was 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 a boil on the ass of the Japanese that that they wasted. They had to deal with lest it become a larger boil. That's what they provided. Well, the, reason, the reason I say long-range precision fires is the air wing. 
because what they provided were were you know two airstrips from which they could launch the United States, the Marine Corps, and the Navy. You know, could launch aircraft to do these these strikes okay. against Japanese. Right. That's why I call it long range precision strikes because right. of the aircraft. Uh, but yeah, so that's right. The, and the rest of it, you know, they were pummeled. But but the aircraft, you know, did tremendous damage, you know, to the Japanese. So, um, you know, I mean, the concept was fine, but it was a division plus, you know, hunkered down, hanging on. Uh, and, you know, that's what, uh, uh, you know, we may end up. Uh, so doing when you in that discussion, um, and my guest today is Mark Kansian. Um, most of you know Mark, and uh, between his writings uh, for decades, it seems like, in the Marine Corps Gazette, where I first uh, read of him. Uh, now he continues to do his work at CSIS and joins us on occasion, and that's what we're doing today. Um, but when you make the case that, okay, so you're going to fire those missiles, you're going, and, and as you just alluded to, you're going to need to be resupplied. How does that happen? Because lurking in the region is going to be fishing vessels. They're going to be unmarked, yep. right? And they're going to be the Chinese fishing fleet, which is really the Chinese Navy. That is going to be, you know, they're going to be marking you. You know, they're going to be, guarding you and they will have uavs both aviation and waterborne that will you know either guide weapons or be themselves weapons you know um how do you elude them right how, how and again I, I don't think i've ever heard a good answer for that question that yeah okay we have these 20 something vessels let's just say things begin to move towards hostilities the mlr now deploys well the chinese deploy their fishing fleet and they're just yep. fishing and they're yep. and they're watching everything you do now you launch your missiles they attack your ship how much damage do they do to your ship before it's immobile before it can't go to sea now you're done yeah well the, you know these laws i mean they, they right. can't take any any damage right there but but that they're designed to be expendable so you know i mean that's that's fair uh, uh yeah i mean i think the other the other big question with this concept is I mean, as you say, all right, hostilities are maybe imminent. Marine Corps puts its troops to sea on these ships and they land where, you know, every every island out there is, you know, a sovereign nation, not the United States. So if you're going to land on some Philippine island, you got to have the permission of the Philippine government. And, you know, maybe they'll be involved in the war. And of course, if they were, if the Chinese were to attack the uh, Philippines, you know, then you could use all their islands and there wouldn't be a problem. But if the Philippines are neutral or trying to stay out of it, you know, they're, they're certainly not going to let the you know U, U.S. Marine Corps, you know, plop down on one of their islands and start shooting at the Chinese. Uh, so. I want you to be critical of the statement, if you can be. I don't think you can be. I think the great failing of the Trump administration uh, internationally was, you know, he was not a fan of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. Um, and he did not replace it with anything else that economically um, paved the way for closer, extremely close economic relations, extremely co- close uh, that would that would lead to diplomatic relations. That that there ha- if that region is so important to us, we have to craft a sweetheart deal for Vietnam, for the Philippines, Malaysia, anybody else who wants to be a part of this. You can get in on this, and you can have access to the economies. Of not only the United States, but hopefully we would lobby our allies, the UK, France, Germany, 
Japan, South Korea with major economies, Canada, that, hey, you need to be part of this because we have to bolster these and protect these economies from China because this is where we believe the fight will be. And none of that happened. because And, and once you have closer economic relationships, once they're insulated a bit from China, uh, and, and, and remember that the, the, the free democracies of the world have gross domestic product that is four times out of China. Okay, so in unison, which is the challenge for the future, can they act in unison to protect the, the, the rules-based order of post-World War II? They've, the Trump administration failed miserably to craft anything close to that because if you could be in the Philippines training with them or in Vietnam training with them, it changes the entire equation. And so you wouldn't have to be looking to you know, set upon one of the Philippine islands, you know, in spite of their neutral position, you would already be there with them. And I think it's one of the major, it's the major failing of the, at least in the the military, you know, realm, international relations realm of the Trump administration. So if you can be critical of that. Um, No, I mean, I would certainly agree. I mean, yes. What I would point out, though, is that that was Trump's um, policy. I mean, Trump was really, you know, I mean, there's an element of isolationism with him, you know, that, you know, he felt that our allies took advantage of us so that these trade deals, I mean, to do what, in other words, to do what you proposed, which is to give them a pretty good trade deal, you know, to link them to us. Um, he would say, no, you know, we're going to screw them. We're going to let, uh, we're not going to let them screw us. Uh, he was very transactional and he was quite willing to say, all right, we're going to go home. You know, we'll build a huge U S military and we'll keep it at home. And, you know, if we have to use it, we'll use it. But you know, those other countries should defend themselves. I mean, uh, now, well, again, I think that argument is appropriate for South Korea, mature, mature democracy, right? Mature economy. I think it's appropriate for Japan. They should shelter more the American taxpayers shelter. But for these emerging nations in the um, in in a, what we've identified is the most strategic part of the world for the United States. That I think he should have he should have made an argument that to his to our allies that hey you paying more will allow us to do this and this is in all of our interests and that's where we need to go. But you're right. I mean it's like. That was that never that subject never even came up during the four years of his administration after he put a bullet in the TPP. Yep, yep. Uh, and then you know there was continuing tension within the administration between you know many officials. You know Mattis, for example. You know we were trying to maintain good relations with our allies and Trump. You know who was sandpapering them. Uh, so. Uh, uh, I mean, it was not it was not an accident. I mean, that right. was uh, intentional on the part of the president. Right, right. The um, but I haven't seen so far. We've seen no overtures by the Biden administration to create anything like that. And if we don't have a closer economic relationship, we won't have a a closer diplomatic or military relationship, which makes the problem of you know of what do you do with the law. Makes you know what? So we're going to go seize islands, and we'll fight from those islands, I guess. And and if they don't like it, 
that's too bad because now we're 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 moving towards war with China, and that where we're at with them. And so I, I, the Biden administration hasn't even made an overture in that direction either. And so I, I don't. Maybe I'm off base on all that. Maybe that. Maybe there's a, a different way to do it. I, I just think that the entire equation gets ch- changed if you have strong economic ties that lead to strong diplomatic ties that lead to military cooperation in Vietnam. And to me, the number one nation, if you want to create a bilateral agreement that you ought to do it with, is the Philippines. The Philippines tilting towards the United States with a security agreement, with joint exercises on a regular basis, with us being able to move in and out of there, that completely changes the dynamics of this equation. Well, the Philippines... um for the Marine Corps, I mean, certainly, you know, those are the islands where you would want to put these kind of capabilities or many of those islands. You know, there are a few others, you know, Taiwan has a few, right. Japan has a few. Um, and, you know, to give the Biden administration some credit, you know, they've done a lot of work on the diplomatic side, uh, you know, trying to um, you know, enhance smooth relations with our partners in Europe and also uh, in Asia. Um, you know, I wrote, you know, I don't know a year ago that a Biden administration would be like a getting into a warm bath for our <laughs> European allies. Right. You know, I mean, it's just so, I mean, he's very much like them. He talks about climate change. He talks about equity. You know, he talks about, you know, the importance of these relationships. I mean, it's just so, you know, it's just so comforting. Yeah. But, you, but again, uh, uh, in, and again, I'm not, I'm not a great Donald Trump fan, but there, he did things, you know, he put them on blast and now their defense spending has gone up, where yes. we, we had presidents for decades go to Europe, wringing their hands, asking them, and they got backhanded. And so, I, you know, although Donald Trump's bedside manner certainly leaves something to be desired, um, you know, I think at the, at the end, I mean, they did all, or, you know, I think with the exception of Germany, uh, the freeloader of the Western world, um, they all increase their defense spending. And my concern, you know, Mark, is that this is the path that gets us to where, you know, we have lowering defense budgets. It's all this nice talk and Joe Biden's like getting into a warm jacuzzi, blah, 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 blah. In the meantime, all of our capabilities atrophy, funding goes away because we're all going to do this nice, nice dance. And so I don't know, there should be. Is there some kind of happy medium we can find between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Yeah, well, I, I would, I would certainly hope so. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, the, uh, you know, I think the problem that the Europeans are going to find is that when this strategic review is over, you know, U.S. forces are going to be smaller uh, in Eastern Europe just because they're going to be smaller uh, globally. Now, you know, for a lot of the Europeans, I think they're they're okay with that. You know, they they would rather have the warm bath. You know, with the, with the water lower, so to speak, uh, you know, than the Donald Trump uh, uh, treatment. Uh, and the Germans, to be fair to them, I mean, they, they have increased their defense spending quite substantially. The problem is they were at such a low level right. and they're still at a low level. Right. Uh, their forces are you know very unready. I, right. I was talking with one European scholar who said that the Germans really had a mobilization military. You know, that is not a military that was designed for current operations, but a military was designed for mobilization. You know, you give it a year or two to get ready and, you know, they could spin this thing up. 
Um, I mean, but you know what, Mark? I mean, that's that is like that's a joke, and we know it. And here you have the most robust economy on the continent not doing its fair share. And I would submit to you with their gas pipeline, you know, funding Russia, right, stabilizing Russia's economy and expanding it, which is to the detriment of Europe. And so to me, Germany is the great freeloader and to me the most destabilizing you know, nation on the European continent in spite of everything they say. And then all of a sudden we want to move troops out of Germany and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We need you here. You know, don't do that. Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Germanophile. Um, and I, I see them as the destable influence among major powers on the, on the European continent. Um, you know, it, by happenstance, I'm, finishing up a report on NATO expansion. So we've been looking a lot at the, you know, the NATO allies and uh, you see a, you know, a big difference between the Eastern Europeans, you know, who are very worried about Russia. You know, of course the Baltic countries are hanging out there, you know, but the Poles, you go to talk to the Poles, they're very worried. You know, there's of course a lot of history here uh, to make them worried. And yeah, but the Romanians also and Bulgarians. But then you go Central Europe, Western Europe, you know, with maybe the exception of you know, France and uh, the UK, you know, they say, yeah, the Russians will never attack, you know, you know, that's an old thing, you know, they're not going to attack, you know, we, we have them deterred. Um, and uh, uh, so you get a very different perspective on the threat and therefore very different uh, levels of defense spending. You know, uh, you know, many of those, you know, the Germans are at, you know, I, I think they went from like 1.2 to 1.4 percent of GDP. You know, which on it's a pretty big jump for uh, you know such a large economy, but it's still way low. Um, it doesn't even get them. I mean, and again, you brought up the readiness issue. I mean, if you want some amusing reading, go ahead and do a search on you know German military readiness, okay, and make sure you don't have any sharp objects near you. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll tell a little vignette here uh, on this subject. Um, a couple of years ago, I walked the Camino, you know, the pilgrim uh, path in ah, Spain. Yeah. And along the way, you end up meeting a lot of people, talking with a lot of people. Well, one of the people I talked with was a German captain. Uh, so, you know, we, you're walking along, you get a lot of time. So, I, you know, what's it like? <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, it just all comes out. You know, he said that the uh, German military came under the civilian um, workforce um, constraints so that they were constrained to a 40-hour work week that you know maybe could be stretched to 48 hours. But then after that, you either had to pay them overtime or you know let them go home. And of course, you know, the military didn't have any money for overtime. They said, well, what that meant was that if you did a two-day exercise, Monday and Tuesday, you came in on Wednesday, that was it. You know, noon, the, the troops went home. And came back the following Monday because they had done their, you know, 48 hours of, of uh, service. Uh, and as a result, you know, getting readiness, you know, which is very, very difficult. Um, you know, what does that tell you? What does that approach tell you about how serious we are about our defense? Well, I mean, it, it tells you about where the Germans are, which is that they don't think they don't see any imminent threat. Um, you know, they have this. And if there is, the Americans will deal with it, right? They've, they've essentially outsourced the funding of their defense to another nation, which is what pisses me off. 
They're freeloading. Um, yeah. So anyway, my anti-Germanic, you know, uh, feelings. And again, about the freeloading, because to me, look, World War II, you know, almost 80 years in the rearview mirror. You know, the rest of us are over it. You know, both Japan and Germany need to get over it and need to be full members of the international community that defends a rules-based order, you know, you know, the, to everybody's benefit. And I, it, 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 I find it irritating when, you know, they want to argue that they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't have to pay for their own defense. They shouldn't be a member of this international community. And, uh, and I think all it does is it invites, um, it, it invites unstable events, right? When, when there is weakness perceived, and I believe both the Russians and the, and the Chinese perceive that, you know, the West is weak. They won't spend the money. They won't, you know, they won't pay. And we will. And slowly but surely, we will, we will crush them. And so to me, the deterrence comes from um, the free nations of the world doing the things that they should do in terms of their own collective defense to, you know, further the rules-based order that they've all thrived under. And, and so I find it, I find it, I won't say insulting certainly doesn't describe the sentiment I feel. Um, it's, to me, it's maddening. Like, like somebody else is going to pay for your defense as a nation. Uh, anyway, my own personal issues. So I didn't mean to turn this into a therapy session, Mark. Um, no problem. I will say, you know, an interesting contrast to the Japanese, though. Okay, Japanese actually only spend 1% of their GDP on defense, less than Germany. Uh, you know, and that's been a long time standard for the Japanese. You know, cons- they've decided that 1% is consistent with their constitution, you know, which is very pacifist. Uh, but they built a very modern, very capable, pretty ready military with right. that 1%. Right. Uh, unlike the Germans, you know, who spend the, you know, whatever it is, 1.4%. You know, and have a you know really nothing you know, unready uh, 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 military. Um, so, I mean, I'll give a Japanese uh, credit in that regard. Talk to me about so at the end of the day, the Marine Corps budget request gets um, you know inflation funding, which is not what the commandant was looking for. Um, what are the prospects of additional funding? in the form of some kind of rider or, or something else. Um, and if that doesn't happen, where does that leave the Marine Corps? And, and where does that leave the commandant relative to his glide path to the Marine Corps that he's envisioned? Yeah. Um, this year, in terms of getting more money, I think it's very unlikely. The House has come in with their marks and they're both at the budget level, the proposed budget level, the Senate will come in and the Senate tends to be a little more hawkish. They maybe they'll come in a little higher, uh, hard to say. Uh, uh, but overall, there's not going to be a lot of money. Got it. Now, now, now we'll see what happens, you know, when the strategic review is completed and we get some out year numbers, um, you know, on the one hand, on, there's a lot of tension on the Democratic side. You know, the progressive wing wants to cut defense. You know, the moderates um, uh, would like to keep defense about where it is, you know, keep it relatively strong. And then you have a, a few like the Lurias, you know, who would be uh, considered defense hawks. Right. So we'll see where that comes out. But it's unlikely to produce a lot of extra money, except <laughs> and this is the except. Um, uh, 
there may be a judgment for the White House that, you know, if you're running a $2 trillion deficit every year, you know, why don't you just give defense another $20 billion and make a bunch of people happy? You know, get the defense hawks off your back. Uh, I think that happened in 22. Uh, originally, uh, the budget was going to be about 705. Uh, it finally came in at 715 and an, an additional about $10 billion. And I think what they decided was, you know, they were proposing, you know, multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages and figured that, you know, for $10 billion, you know, they could buy down a lot of uh, political opposition in, in defense. So it's, it's not inconceivable that the administration decides, you know, just to, you know, pile a little more on the deficit to add to defense. Uh, but you don't believe that's going to happen. I it's not going to happen in twenty two. Okay. Uh, uh, in twenty three and out, it could happen. Um, uh, I mean, it could happen. I I, I I I I don't know. If it does, you know, if defense does get some extra money, then the you know the commandant may be okay. You know, he may get enough money that he can, you know, between the cuts he's made. Yeah, uh, and you know, stretching out some of his uh, initiatives, you know, that he can, you know, at least get started on the path he wants to go down. Now, you know, his challenge is going to be that uh, he's got, you know, what two years left. So, you know, in two years, there's going to be somebody else sitting in that chair, and he's right. hoping that somebody else, you know, has the same vision. Uh, and they might, you know, that person would be appointed by uh, the Biden administration, you know, with his you know, I, I think, which is inclined to go along with his his vision. But but you never know. You know, very often there'll be a, a correction as, you know, a new leadership comes in that, you know, wants to, you know, hedge a bit. Uh, I've So the bottom had, line in his third year, twenty the 2022 budget, he's not going to be able to go where he wants to go unless he wants to cut more personnel. Not in 2022. Not in 22. So 2022 no, we'll is is essentially downrange, yep. and he is not he he will not have the money that he needs. 2023, we'll find out what the Biden administration thinks on longer range defense planning in January, and that's the next shoe to drop. And if and if and if the Marine Corps does not get relief there, then his vision is left in. I don't want to say the word. I don't. I, you know. I don't want to be melodramatic about it. But we've divested, and then we don't have the money to invest. So, the Marine Corps a less capable force. Um. I mean, I I think it will be. I I think that the problem they'll have is that, you know, that that trying to get rid of some of the old capabilities and not being able to buy new capabilities will put them in a very awkward spot. Now, they may just... What does a very awkward spot mean? Less capable, yes? Well, less capable. That's right. Not to force those words yeah. on you or anything, yeah. but, yeah. Well, but again... And, and, uh, the reason I'm hesitating on less capable is, you know, for example, suppose that they keep the cannon artillery rather than converting to the... Um, missile uh, uh, platforms. Okay. Um, you know, that's not less capable. I mean, that, that's still quite a capable Marine Corps. It's not the Marine Corps that uh, General Berger wanted to build, and it may not be entirely consistent with all the other pieces that he's 
um, you know, putting in place, uh, but it's not less capable. Uh, so, you know, keeping, you know, a bunch of the older equipment, you know, will not necessarily be, I say, won't be less capable. It just won't be consistent with where the Commodore wants to go. And it may not all fit together. Uh, I, you know, I think that's that's the risk. Got it. And I was also going to add one one thing, which is, you know, I've been writing a number of these articles, you know, raising some concerns about where the Marine Corps is going. Um, although I would also note, you know, some of the things they're doing, I think, are, are great ideas and I strongly uh, support them. Uh, I've got a lot of emails from retired general officers, you know, who, you know, are, are very worried about the future of the Marine Corps, but, you know, know that they cannot say anything publicly. Well, and, and their concern is, because um, I've heard from them. And it, tell me, and I'll tell you what I've heard, and then you can tell me what you've heard. Um, Marine Corps has gone down this path before, faced by faced with new challenges. And what we've done is is um, we haven't we've been a force in readiness. We've been um, we've been the best bang for the buck, and we've been a generalist force that can swing to any conflict, and therefore our utility to the nation. The danger of committing to seemingly danger of committing to one region and one COA is the the Lynn Wells memo. You will be irrelevant, right? If you can't do Windows, and the Marine Corps is saying we won't, we don't do Windows anymore, and so their and then their admonishment to me is. Once you begin to not participate in conflicts and become irrelevant, other people will pick up those missions and you will lose. Next, if you go down this path of divesting and you do not have guarantees in writing with the Navy and with Congress, you are asking to be screwed because the Navy will screw you every time over money. So that's what I hear. So tell me what you hear. Well, I... I'm hearing exactly the same things. You know, there's the concerns about money. Uh, you know, of, co- of course, I also hear from, you know, retired Navy officers, you know, you know, make the argument that, hey, you know, Marine Corps, we're not screwing you. You know, you just, you just have to live within the resources that, you know, are available to the whole Department of the Navy. Um, but, but yes, the concerns about not having enough money to make these new uh, investments, but also, you know, getting so specialized that you are not able to participate in the, you know, the wide variety right. of conflicts that Marine Corps has done in, in the past. And, you know, I, and I've heard Marines get up there and say, you know, Middle East, Korea, you know, those are army problems. You know, we, we won't participate. Uh, and, you know, my response is, you know, if, if, if you're going to cede all of that to the army, you know, places where the Marine Corps has participated in the past, um, you know, you're looking you're going to you're going to be at a huge disadvantage when people sit around the table and divide up the money. You know, right. We saw that uh, during the 2000s, you know, the the Navy particularly was scrambling to be relevant because, you know, these were ground, you know, conflicts, you know, that, that, that didn't lend themselves to naval capabilities. Uh, uh, so the, you know, there's a lot of you know risk there. You know, the, the Marine Corps nightmare about, you know, being uh, overshadowed by the Army. Right. Right, and that you've been marginalized, um, and now you're out of business. And, you know, again, and their criticism of General Berger is that we've done this to ourselves. In spite of the history that we know, in spite of, and again, I think 
Um, I think the most <clears throat> reasoned uh, discussion I've heard of is, look, we have no doubt that 3MEF needs to tilt specifically towards the South China Sea and to China. But the fight in North Korea is much different, and that's a 3MEF fight. No, And then if you go anywhere, if you go to Africa, different. If you have to go back to the Middle East, different. And so how, what sense does it make for the entire Marine Corps to become Marine Littoral Regiments? And on top of that, when you add in the funding quotient, you know, is this an existential threat to the Marine Corps? And the the ones that are most adamant, you know, make that argument. And then the other thing they tell me is this. What we believe is that three MEF should tilt. One MEF should still be the heavy right hand, right? Put tanks and your tube artillery in the reserve yep. that you could call out of them. And, yep. and two MEF should be able to swing both ways. And so yep. you have a balanced force that can, can participate in the, across the range of military operations. And the other thing that they said was, and the other question we have is this. Has this been vetted through Congress and through the war plans? Because there's going to be a cost. Oh, so we're going to take two Marine divisions out of this war plan? Well, where are the other divisions coming from? Oh, the Army. Well, then that means we're going to have to fund them to this level. And they said, we don't think that that reconciliation has been done across war plans because at that point, the Marine Corps is going to pay for it in different ways. So it's it's very it's not a a just to be critical of General Berger and 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 this advanced based operations concept and and all of that. It's not that. It is the legacy of the Marine Corps. This road the Marine Corps has gone down with when you know President Kennedy wanted the Marine Corps to become the Green Berets, right? And then the push after Desert One to for special operations. The Marine Corps said, No, we don't we, we have special operations forces or our MUSE, you know, and they pushed away to to stay in this lane of the generalist that responds in all conflicts and, and now getting out of that lane. So it's with history on their side they I think they they very smartly argue for this role of the generalist. And I think it's uh I think it's so and, and again they warned General Berger not to go down this road without guarantees, and now what you see is the Marine Corps having divested, not being funded to the level that he wants. His third year is already financially downrange, and in his fourth year, there's a question mark. And I don't. And so I, I mean, I, I hear them, and their questions are good questions, and they're yet to be resolved. And it seems like, um, I don't know, the worst case scenario of the, the the Marine Corps, but certainly a, it's now back on General Berger to continue to divest to create the force that he wants, if he wants to create it. And I think that's where he's at. Am I mistaken in that? Um, I think we're in violent agreement on this. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, General Berger would have to cut more, um, you know, as we talked about that, you know, that would take the Marine Corps below, you know, where it's been, you know, for the last, you know, whatever, 60 years, you know, which would be quite risky. Um, uh, the other one thing to watch uh, is the restructuring of the infantry battalion. Right. You know, they've, they've put out a new vision. You know, it's a much smaller infantry battalion and a much um, more lightly armed infantry battalion. You know, it's designed. It's really a light infantry battalion. Right. Uh, designed to move around quickly, you know, consistent with this concept about moving around on 
uh, islands in the Western Pacific, but not a very good infantry battalion if you're going to go up against, you know, if you're going to go up against really anybody except special forces. Um, and so we'll see how that discussion plays out. Interesting. And General Alfred just went to Quantico to go make that real, I think, if I'm not mistaken. That's why that's what that's his job now is to figure out the schooling, the pipeline and all the rest of it. So um, I, I, obviously I will say I'm, I'm going to jump in and say one thing. We've been sure. criticizing General Berger here. Uh, I'm going to say two things, actually, in his concept that I really do like. Uh, you know, one is he's talking about lengthening training pipelines. Right. And if he can actually do that, I think that's a very good thing. Uh, you know, giving uh, young Marines a lot of training, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, I mean, as I think a great thing, and there's always a lot of temptation to cut that training. Um, and the other thing is he always talks about maintaining high standards. And, you know, again, we'll see how that plays out, but but I, I like the, the rhetoric. So th- those are two things that, that I really do like uh, in his, uh, uh, his concept. Got it. Well, that is the challenge for the entire United States military because um, the article that we we didn't really get to talk to, but um, you know, is 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 an article written in the Wall Street Journal. And and if you have, do you have like five more minutes, Mark, and I'll let you go. Sure. Um, the article um, that appeared in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday um, that is. I guess you would say moderately disturbing um, is about the readiness of the United States Navy. And it's entitled, If War Comes, Will the U.S. Navy Be Prepared? Subheadline, a new report details a culture of bureaucracy and risk aversion that is corroding readiness. You read that, right? Yeah! Right? And you gasp. Now, and this is in the Wall Street Journal, for the love of God. It's not in some nuanced defense publication, right? It's one of, in one of the major news publications of the nation is now writing about the readiness of the United States Navy. So I would tell you that if, you're, if, if that's where you're at, you've broken squelch in terms of you've got the nation's attention relative to your own readiness, which is probably not a good thing. And so uh, the article essentially talks about a study that was – uh, done at the request of Senator Tom Cotton, Congressman Mike Gallagher, former Marine, Cotton, a former you know United States Army infantry officer, Jim Banks, and Dan Crenshaw, former Green Beret, I think. Um, what's Crenshaw that? Was a seal. Oh, Crenshaw was a seal. What about Banks? I'm not sure. Not sure. Um, and so I'll read you the first paragraph of the executive summary. The authors of this review conducted long-form interviews with numerous active duty and retire, recently retired or detached officers and enlisted personnel about their insights into the culture of the United States Navy following a series of high-profile and damaging operational failures in the Navy's surface warfare community. The discussion below is intended to inform Congress of the findings of these interviews with an emphasis on subjects including funding, maintenance planning, administrative management, and operational employment now i did not i just got this a couple hours ago i did not get a chance to to look at it um look at it you know in in detail before we came on but um but the last paragraph of the executive summary 
um, is is pretty eye opening. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I so this is the last paragraph of the executive summary. Concern within the Navy runs so high that when asked whether incidents such as the two destroyer collisions in the Pacific, the surrender of a small craft to the IRGC in the Arabian Gulf, the burning of the Bonham Richard, and other incidents were part of a broader cultural leadership problem in the Navy, 94% of interviewees responded yes. 3% said no. 3% said unsure. And when asked if the incidents were directly connected, 55% said yes, 16% said no, 29% unsure. This sentiment that the Navy is dangerously off course was overwhelming. So that's the last paragraph in the executive summary. So, um, Mark, your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, 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 I actually printed it off, so it's sitting on my lap here. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I can't say that the two authors, uh, Schmidl and Montgomery, you know, Schmidl, a retired Marine uh, three-star, and uh, Montgomery, uh, retired Navy uh, admiral, are, are serious people. They both, you know, have written a lot. They've, you know, they're known as defense intellectuals. Um, so, you know, th- th- these are, it, it's, it's something to be taken seriously. I say these are two serious people. Um and I think you're going to hear a lot more about these kinds of concerns. Uh, the, uh, uh, I mean, first, of course, funding puts everybody under some pressure. Right. Uh, and then Democratic administrations put a lot of focus on, um, you know, um, social issues, social and cultural issues. Right. And, you know, very often that is uncomfortable for the military. You know, right now they're very focused, for example, on um, uh, supremacist organizations in the military. I believe Um, we're referring to that as extremism. Extremism, yes. Uh, uh, And, you know, talking to some senior uh, leaders in the Pentagon, I talked to one very senior leader. He said that he had been to 20 meetings about extremist groups. Uh, He had been to one meeting about strategy. Uh, now this was early on, so to, to be fair, but, you know, I think that you're going to hear more about it. You know, Millie has been flogged a bit for, uh, you know, some of his comments on you know, critical race theory and whatnot. So, you know, I, I think these concerns are going to continue to mount. The, um, I'll read you a quote from the wall street journal article that they pull out of the, the, uh, the study, um, Quote, I guarantee you every unit in the Navy is up to speed on their diversity training, said one recently retired senior enlisted <laughs> leader. Quote, I'm sorry that I can't say the same about their ship handling training. And that is, again, that's what that's what we all see. I, you know, again, um, there's another uh, article that I read about, you know, this, this, you make one mistake and you're out culture that we've, you know, uh, we've kind of bred in the American military. And it talks about the guys who won World War Two, right? And how right. and 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 the and the drinking, the womanizing, the things they did. But because you didn't have an internet, right? And you didn't have leaders that were so sensitive to social media, you know, they those guys got second and third chances in some cases, you know. And Patton's a great example of it, you know. 
you know, fired, you know, uh, by, you know, in, uh, you know, for the mistreatment of a soldier um, and then uh, and then put back in charge after, you know, the Normandy invasion of what uh, the third army and uh, ultimately, you know, goes to uh, goes into Germany like that and it would never happen today. And, and you only have so much you know, high quality talent at that level. And, and, and the leadership requirement, I heard General Zinni say once, we've got to get away from this Boy Scout trait leadership requirement. He said, you know, the great captains in history rarely had any of those traits. They were flawed human beings, but they were great military leaders. And so to me, it's, it's very interesting when you, when you look at that and the Navy I mean, and I think one of the problems that you see, and I and I, I think you see it inherent in in the in our direction in Afghanistan, and the same thing in our direction uh, in in Iraq. We have too many high end, high functioning conformists in those jobs. We need people that will click off safe and let it rip on 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 policymakers and say, no, you cannot do this for these reasons. And I, I think there's no more absurd folly, you know, than Afghanistan. Thinking that we would create something that has never existed on the planet and we would do that in some relatively short, you know, time frame is absolutely the most ridiculous thing, you know, I've ever seen a, attempted on the planet. I mean, Afghanistan's never existed. And we were go- going to restore, you know, some kind of or create some kind of democracy, give women their rights, send all the kids to school to include the little girls. We're going to do this somehow, and then it's going to take us less than 20 years, and then we're going to leave. It's all going to be good. I mean, Mark, just stupid. And the people that are supposed to make those arguments are 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 the leaders of the American military. No, let us explain to you why you cannot do this, why this is not a good course of action and we need more Greg Newbolds and more Tony Zinnies. And what you get is these high-functioning conformists that go to, to Congress and get confirmed when they say, uh, yes, Senator, I will speak truth to power. And then never do. Because as soon as it's going to cost me you know, my rank, as soon as it's going to cost me my job, I'm not saying that. And, and this, this, this woke thing and this critical race theory discussion – why aren't the leaders of the American military saying, you know what, we intend in the United States Navy, we intend to have a very balanced discussion about race in our country, right? And we will ha- we will read a variety of books, you know, stuff written by Shelby Steele, who's a conservative, and st- stuff written by liberals. And we're going to look at the entire spectrum of what's written, and we're going to have a mature conversation. And it's that model we will use with all kinds of diversity training we will look at it in toto and set an example for the country but what you get mark is just race to being the most woke and it's disgusting to watch and i don't you know so how do you save the american military from this that's a question man how do you save it from from these high-end conformists that don't have the moral courage that greg newbold has I and think, I think and, that's a broader that's a broader discussion. And Anthony Shinseki uh, got shown the door as soon as he told Don Rumsfeld, "Well, the war plan calls for close to three hundred thousand troops in in Iraq after we after you know we we solve the initial conflict." He's done. So, 
I see it all linked together. I don't know if you do, but I do. I, I say, we're, I think that's a conversation, you know, a longer conversation for another time because, I mean, sort of unpacking what we expect of our leadership, recognizing you know, we live in a democracy, you know, when, you know, they have to be responsive to the civilian leadership that has been elected by the American people. On the other hand, they have responsibility uh, for war fighting and to their troops and, you know, balancing those two, um, I think is a, a great conversation, but we'll have to leave that for next time. All right. Well, first of all, I always enjoy this. And, I, you know, again, it highlights the predicament of the Marine Corps and General Berger's challenge coming up based on his vision and where he wants to take the Marine Corps. You know, can he get the Marine Corps there? And uh, and so uh, we, we will stay tuned and, and to see if he does, in fact, turn around and cut more personnel to pay for the modernization that he believes the Marine Corps should take because he's in a, a bit of a difficult position and it's his time to the Commandant begins to get in its, uh, certainly in its second half and we'll see what he does. But um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what's the next thing you're either doing in video or writing about. Um, we're finishing up a report actually on NATO expansion, looking at the force requirements if Ukraine or Georgia or Finland or Sweden or Bosnia-Herzegovina were brought into NATO, making the argument that we need to consider those force requirements before we do further expansion because they could be very substantial. Um, and then looking beyond that, I annually do a, an analysis of mil U.S. military forces, and we'll be starting that probably next month to come out with the military forces in FY 2022. Tell everybody about that, because if you haven't looked at this, if you're looking to see, you know, the direction of the, the American military, Mark and his crew do a really good job. Um, and tell them, tell everybody how you break down each branch of the military. Yeah, we uh, we have an overview section and then we look at each one of the uh, military services, uh, plus take a look at uh, civilians uh, and contractors you know, to see what's happening in this year's budget in how Congress is reacting to that. And then also, you know, what are the bigger issues that are at play that we see um, uh, playing out in the budget and looking forward to in the future? Yeah, so if you're looking for something concise um, and uh, and very well done, I mean, Mark and his uh, crew, do the, they do a great job. I was looking at that, um, compiling statistics for just even force levels of, you know, different years. And I... You know, I, I did a search, and all of a sudden I see this thing, and I'm like, I click on it. I'm like, oh, my God, Mark Hansian. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> and and let me tell you, it, it's footnoted in a presentation I do about suicide and uh, and force structure and things like that. So, anyway, Mark, as always, I um, uh, love having you on. Thank you very much for all the insightful and, uh, and, uh, and, and I don't know, well-thought, you know, um, evaluation of the direction of the American military. I certainly enjoy your work, and thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me on the show. All right. There you have it, Mark Cancian. See you, Mark. Out here. Rock. <laughs> That'll do it. I Yeah, again, I the commandant's in a tough place. Uh, 
Uh, here's an email. Mac, enjoy the conversation um, through friends of mine that are aviators. The commandant will get pushback when he tries to cut the F-35 by as well as the KC-53 Kilo. The aviation community is a little bit tired of paying for the force structure changes in the Marine Corps. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. He doesn't have many places to go for money anymore. Yeah. No, and... um, Yeah, and there's an element of told you so out there that's um, that's lurking. That people whose advice he did not take would never say in public, but that's what they feel. And that he's in the exact predicament that they told him he would be in, and that is you will divest. If the budget doesn't go up, the Navy will screw you for money there will not be any extra for you and then you're going to be a less capable force and that's the question and I think Mark's point is very good so instead of you know instead of rockets you're going to have tube artillery still means you can execute the concept right but the tube artillery will not have the range of the rockets my understanding I don't believe Unless they're all high marks. So, anyway, my thanks to Mark Kansian for coming on. And that'll do it on a Tuesday. Here's another email. Wow. Is it me or is the Navy just taking haymaker after haymaker after haymaker? And what will come of the Bonham Richard incident when that gets published? I'm really curious to understand why an American warship burned in port for five days. What possibly could be the answer to that? My own opinion is whatever the answer is, it will not reflect well on the American Navy. But I think the way to a better place is that it's got to be publicized, it's got to be recognized, and then it's got to be fixed. I was watching the news this morning, and there was a story on Fox News based on that Wall Street Journal article. So we're talking mainstream news coverage of a Navy that is not operationally very good. I think that's the kind of discussion that needs to take place before anything can get fixed. So as sad as it may be, it is the necessary path. Thanks for having Colonel Kansian on. Always a smart guy, always a thoughtful guy. I agree. I agree. So um, that'll do it on a Tuesday. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Thanks for listening. If I can help you help somebody that's struggling, please.
please do not hesitate. And on a Tuesday, I'm out.